This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. You've endorsed more than 330 candidates this election cycle. Uh, Tonight, win or lose, the results for Republicans, um, how much of that will be because of Donald Trump? Well, I think if they win, I should get all the credit. And if they lose, I should not be blamed at all. Okay, But it'll probably be just the opposite. Uh, When they win, I think they're going to do very well. I'll probably be given very little credit, even though in many cases I told people to run. And they ran, and they turned out to be very good candidates. You know, they've turned out to be very good candidates. uh, But usually what would happen is when they do well, I won't be given any credit. And if they do badly, they will blame everything on me. So I'm prepared for anything. listeners and welcome back to this latest episode of the enemy within podcast my name is pete remand and i'm joined as always by my co-host james foley james how are you doing i'm smashing pete how are you back in the states i'm good just got back a few days ago so listeners i was recently back in scotland and i was visiting you and your lovely family and i also got to meet your daughter for the first time which was a fantastic experience and i really enjoyed staying with you yeah bella's already featured on the pod and on several other pods in the contour network in various different incarnations listeners will already be familiar with her our policy in Bella is that she's not allowed anywhere near politics and particularly the politics of the left because that should be a child's own choice really, you know and frankly I think if you indoctrinate children with that type of politics they're ultimately just going to rebel against it or do a more rubbish version of it whereas I think they should have the freedom to reinvent the meaning of the left for themselves in a better way. There is of course that term for this isn't there? Red diaper baby, the children of socialist activists. Yeah and we're determined that that will not be the case uh, for Bella. We're just going to work on the default assumption that she will work in the private sector, read the telegraph and vote for the centre right by which I mean Keir Starmer. I'm kind of hoping that Keir Starmer is not still Labour leader by the time that Bella is at voting age. He might be a Conservative leader. But while we were back, Bella got baptised and I became a godfather, which I'm very excited about. I got to renounce Satan and all of his ways in church. It was fantastic. Yeah, what we needed was the montage from the Godfather, though, didn't we? Like, of you renouncing Satan and then all your enemies being slayed. (laughs) That, I mean, that would have been pretty cool. I'll be honest, I was thinking about that scene in Godfather 2 when Michael Corleone does that, and I don't think I looked quite as cool as that. No, I mean, you didn't look quite as cool as that, but that's only because you weren't slaying enough people. I will make sure and work on that before the birth of your next child. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, it's been good to be back in the US. I got back just in time for the US midterms, which is the main topic of conversation of today. This week, the US went to the polls. There was a wide expectation that the Republicans were going to do very well. There was a supposed red wave coming and it didn't materialise. Actually, the Democrats held up pretty well in most seats, although there is a lot of variation across the whole country. James, what did it look like from abroad? Well, I mean, it looks like very much what you just said. I mean, the interesting thing is, we used to talk a lot about the collapse of centrism and the centre-left. Actually, those types of parties broadly seem to be in a process of taking back 
control electorally. Uh, you've got Biden in the US. Starmer's probably going to be in power in the UK. Obviously, Macron is still in power in France and Schultz, Germany, and so on and so forth. So there actually is quite a lot of old-school, retro, 1990s fascist centrist leadership going on all of a sudden when it seemed to have died a timely death, quite frankly, after the 2008 crisis. So I guess like it kind of is a picture of this, which is like the failure of the populist and hard right to make really significant breakthroughs, but also the fact that in the process of keeping out that element of the right wing, the centre is so compromised intellectually that they don't really have significant ways to lead forward. I think that's a really interesting point. So let's look at the US in a bit more detail. And we can look at both the democratic side, that is to say the centrist governance that you were talking about, and also the right-wing insurgency, populist or otherwise. Because I think there's a lot of interesting things to break down here. The main narrative unsurprisingly, in the US, is that Biden has performed much better than expected. And it's worth saying, for a start, that he did. The Democrats performed historically well in this election. There's only two times in recent political history in which an incumbent president has not lost the House in the first midterm elections. The only time in which an incumbent president has made gains in the House were Bush in the cycle immediately after 9-11, and Bill Clinton in his second round of midterms when he was undergoing impeachment proceedings, which the American population largely rejected. Those are the only two times. This is one of the best performances by an incumbent president. Having said that, there are a lot of results to come in, but the probability is that he's going to lose the House of Representatives and it's going to be a toss-up in the Senate. It's going to come down to a runoff in Georgia. And so Biden is going to face a lot of problems with a Republican-controlled House, even though he's performed well. We can expect to see inquiries proposed on his son, Hunter Biden, on Ukraine. All of that sort of stuff is now going to be proposed by various different groups within the Republican Party. And Biden's time is going to be used having to sit and testify in those sorts of hearings and possibly face the embarrassment of his son having to go and testify. On top of that, if the Republicans control the House, they control the purse strings in America, which means we could be going back to a time of government shutdowns, which isn't going to be much fun. Yeah, it sounds pretty grim. I mean, to be fair, most of the world has already seen Hunter Biden's dick because all of his porno tapes have already been released. Uh, so in that sense, I'm not sure it can get significantly worse than it already has in relation to Hunter Biden. I mean, is, do we actually have a politics that's basically scandal-proof these days? Hunter Biden has got into all sorts of devilish japes over the years. But like, it's kind of like looking at our own situation here, isn't it? The SNP has scandal after scandal. It seems like every couple of weeks there's a new scandal. Um, the Labour Party has scandal after scandal. But you're always just measuring that against what's going on with the Conservatives and saying, well, you know, it doesn't really measure up. And likewise, I suppose, while I can see that there could be some problems coming down the line for Biden if these links start getting investigated, you can also just see how polarisation will render much of that completely irrelevant. Absolutely. And let's be honest, you can't outscandal Trump. That is one thing that no, very few people Indeed. on this planet will ever be able to do. 
going back to one thing you said previously, James, while the White House is trying to present this as a victory for Biden, I think it's far more complicated than that. And I don't think really that Biden, in many respects, has a lot to do with it. He has pretty unpopular ratings in the polls at around 40, which is exactly where Trump was at this time in his presidential term. So it's not the case that Biden is particularly popular. The Republicans went hard on inflation, saying that this was the biggest issue. The two big issues that they went on nationally was inflation and on crime. And to some extent, that seemed to be cutting. But it's worth saying that inflation is not running as high in the US as it is in the UK or the rest of Europe. It's, I think, officially at around 7.5% right now. But it's not biting quite as hard. The other thing is that abortion turned out to be a really huge issue. Unsurprisingly, this is what the Democrats really campaigned on after the Supreme Court decision on Roe versus Wade. And that had an uneven, and we'll get into that in a second, but a big impact. Really what you saw is a huge turnout in a highly polarised society in which Democrats turned out not to vote for Biden, but they knew who they were voting against. And they knew some of the issues that they were voting against. The turnout in this midterm parallels previous presidential elections. That's how big the turnout was. David Plouffe, who was um, Obama's campaign director, he's a pu- now a pundit on MSNBC, but he made a point which I think has a, a lot of merit to it, which is that we may have entered a new cycle in American electoral politics, and that yeah. is one characterised by polarisation and high turnout. If you remember back to two years ago, Biden got the biggest vote of any president in US history. And his opponent, Donald Trump, got the second highest vote in US history. And in that election, everyone was predicting a blue wave. They were predicting that Biden would win by a substantial margin and he would carry Democrats on down-ballot races, as they're called. And so you would have a Democratic-controlled House and Senate. And in actual fact, that didn't happen. It was tight. Biden won the presidential. But in terms of the House and Senate races, Republican turnout was high enough that it blocked any wave. What we've seen again is there was a prediction that you'd have a red wave this time. And what happens? You have incredibly high turnout on both sides that ultimately block any sort of wave. So we could have moved into a period in American politics, at least, in which we're not going to see big swings in which one party controls all the branches of government. Yeah, and it turned out matters, I understand it, and I'll defer to your superior judgment when it comes to American politics. But as I understand it from the outside, the significance of this is basically in American elections historically, there is a president, then it comes to the midterms and everyone's fucking tired of the president. So their voters don't turn out and their turnout is depressed and then the other side turn out and give them a kicking. But what's happening with the intense polarisation post-Trump is that both sides are turning out in the midterms. And that's basically meaning that you get continual stalemate in a way that you don't get the thrashings that were administered previously. Absolutely. That's exactly right. You have this cycle in American politics where when a new president comes in, usually people are so fed up with the old regime that's usually lasted eight years that they come in a huge wave, they take control of both houses, they're able to pass legislation for a couple of years, and then, as you say, the midterms come around and they lose control. Usually, in the past, it's run like clockwork. And maybe we're in a period in which that's no longer the case. Another little fact that I think is a useful one in showing that this really wasn't about support for Biden or support for Biden's agenda. There were CNN exit polls 
that came out. And one of the questions was, uh, what are your feelings about the way things are going in the US? Only 5% of people were enthusiastic and only 20% were satisfied. 39% were dissatisfied and 34% were angry. So that is to say, in the whole US population, more than 70% of the electorate were either dissatisfied or angry with the way things are going. Now, that is usually a recipe for the incumbent to get a kicking. And the exact opposite happened. So I think that certainly demonstrates the extent to which this was not really a victory for Biden. It's not really a victory for the centrist project. Well, that could be the case. But on the other hand, this might weirdly work to Biden's favour in the sense of like, He's obviously not benefiting from anything that he's actually done on a positive level. Which is not to say that he's done nothing on a positive level. There's one or two things that you can point to. But actually, that's got nothing to do with why Biden has done well here. What is going on is that the Republicans keep kicking themselves in the nuts, basically, as far as I can understand. I mean, things like abortion albeit like the base of the party is obsessed with it. So it's all these kind of self-administered kickings that they keep getting. Now, if that is the case, and that is basically what drives support for Biden, the fact that he's continually getting blocked by the Republicans in terms of his initiatives is possibly not going to do him any real harm, right? Because really all we need to do is rely on the Republicans to do their usual mad shit, whether it's complaining that the election has been stolen, whether it's uh, dressing up like a buffalo and invading the Capitol building, or whether it's like using the Supreme Court to block abortion. You know what I mean? It is the Republicans giving themselves a kicking that you can rely upon. And it, the sad thing about that is it kind of just imposes absolutely no requirement on the Democrats to do anything. And anything that they do that's positive seems to be either arbitrary and accidental or purely voluntary but has nothing to do with the levels of support so pete what is the trump factor in all of this i mean obviously donald trump has centered himself in this whole thing and it seems like a monumental act of stupidity he announced that he was going to make a big announcement prior to the midterms which i think just probably motivated the other side to come out and vote to give particularly trump a kicking I think, as far as I understand it, basically all his big endorsed candidates vastly underperformed and were shown to be out of their depth. So where does this leave Donald Trump? And what about the other Republican candidates? Are they making any inroads? That's absolutely right. And it's one of the other big narratives about this whole election. Trump really wanted to make the election about himself. He made a calculation, which was the Republicans are going to win big, I want to get as many of my people in as possible. And when we win, I'll then be able to see that it was about my intervention. And that's why I should be the next candidate for the presidency. And it really didn't work out. As you say, the, the candidates he backed, on average, really underperformed. Now, what this means is that you've got sections of the Republican leadership coming out and saying, we need to have a clean break from Donald Trump. He cost us this election. And certainly that's what the Liberals are saying. The reality is, though, that I don't know that this means this is really the end for Trump. It wasn't a good night for Trump. It certainly was a bad one. But having said that, the Republican leadership have never been his fans. They've always had a mixed relationship with him. The reality is that 
Trump's support is in the base of the Republican Party. And when it comes down to the primary process, which is really only about a year away from starting, is it the case that anyone on the Republican side can beat Trump? And there's basically two people being talked about as candidates. It's Trump and it's DeSantis, who is the uh, governor of Florida, who, is worth saying, had an excellent election night. You really saw the regionalism of the US, where in Florida, the Republicans walked home by a mile on a very right-wing agenda. And DeSantis is a very right-wing conservative. He has said in the past that if Trump stands, he will stand aside. We'll see if that happens, because everybody knows that he wants to stand. He's not seen as a necessarily as a MAGA Republican. He's more of the sort of Ted Cruz mold. Ultra right-wing, but a bit critical of Trump. He is certainly the person that the mainstream of the Republican Party are going to get behind. But in my opinion, it might still be Trump's to lose. He still has a huge amount of support amongst the base of the Republican Party. When it comes to primary elections, it's a relatively small number of people who select who the candidates are. Not as bad as the Conservative Party's leadership election process, but it's still a massively skewed section of the electorate. And amongst people who vote in Republican primaries, Trump's very popular. I guess one of the interesting things here is the question of abortion. There was, prior to this, a prediction that it wouldn't quite be the big issue that many had imagined it might be, that it would be swamped by the bigger economic questions of inflation and cost of living problems that the Republicans had some advantage on. What was the impact of the abortion question on this? How important was that to the failures of the Republican vote? It became a much bigger issue than was predicted in the last couple of months. As you say, there was an expectation that the economy was becoming the central issue. What's interesting is that it had an impact, but it played out very unevenly. That is to say that there are some states in the US, like the state where I live in Wisconsin, where abortion was very much on the ballot, right? So in Wisconsin, the Republicans control local government, both the local House and Senate, but the Democrats have the governor's office, which means that he has a veto. What was going to happen in Wisconsin if the Democratic governor lost the race was that within a matter of weeks, Republicans were going to put through legislation that means that the law on abortion in Wisconsin would revert back to one written in the 1870s. And I'm sure you can imagine exactly what that sounded like. So it very much felt like abortion was on the ballot in Wisconsin. And what we saw is that in states where that was the case, we saw big turnouts from Democrats and the Democrats overperformed. In states where that it wasn't such a big issue or it wasn't directly a contested issue, the Democrats didn't do as well. Probably the best comparison is between Michigan and New York. The Republicans were pretty confident that they could do well in Michigan. This is a part of the Rust Belt that Trump has performed pretty well in. And so there was an expectation that anger at Biden would mean good results for the Republicans. Actually, the Democrats romped home in really every seat. Every contested local election, the Democrats won. And they won the Senate and the governor's mansion. That was huge for them. Now, you compare that to New York, where the Democrats performed atrociously. Republicans actually did really well in, in the state of New York. They won most of the contested seats to Congress. Now, you could say one of the reasons for that is there's no chance that abortion is going to be made illegal in the state of New York. There's a Democratic governor, all that sort of thing. And so, you know, you really saw these regional effects in the US. Can I, can I ask you a little bit about that? Because that might 
it seems to fly in the face of some of the assumptions about the populist geography, which would suggest that sort of elite, wealthy New York would tend to be swinging towards Democrats, whereas the Rust Belt, Michigan, would be Trumpist. Is there a shift in realignment happening there, or is that just something that is very particular to issues around abortion and so on? It's hard to say if there's a shift. I think it does say a lot about the type of politics that should be run on in elections, and it really bears on questions of strategy for the left. I mean, in relation to New York, it's worth saying New York State, there are some very poor areas in upstate New York and so on. Uh, But you're absolutely right. New York, you would expect the Democrats to do well in. It's a democratic state through and through. Effectively, what you saw is in Michigan and in Wisconsin, where thankfully the Democratic governor, Tony Evers, did win, there was a huge amount of motivation to turn out. And in some places where it didn't feel like a threat, there wasn't a huge motivation to turn out. But it also does speak to the types of campaigns that were run beyond the issue of abortion. So let's move on to Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is a really interesting one because the Republicans thought they could win it. But the really big race in Pennsylvania was for the Senate. And it was between uh, a Trump-backed celebrity, Dr. Oz, Mehmet Oz, who's a talk show host, a, a doctor, apparently, and John Fetterman, who I think is one of the most interesting candidates to be running in this election. And Fetterman won by nearly five points, which was not expected. I mean, this was supposed to be close or probably an Oz win. The reason I think Fetterman's really interesting is he represents a brand of left politics that I think should be replicated. That is to say that he's very much an economic populist. You know, he was endorsed by Sanders and AOC, but he doesn't have, in policy terms, quite as radical politics. But his presentation of politics is, in my opinion, fantastic. This is a guy who lives in an old steel town. Even when he became lieutenant governor of the state, he didn't move into the big house in in the capital that you're supposed to. He stayed in his steel town. He's a giant guy. He's six foot eight, skinhead, tattoos all over his arms, looks like an old working class guy, doesn't wear a suit, famously only owns one suit. All the rest of the time, you can just see him in like a black hoodie or jeans and shorts and that sort of thing. And the way he talks about politics, he doesn't centre culture war issues. He centres economic issues and he has a very simple way of communicating those ideas. Trump performed very well in his state in the old deindustrialized areas, which are ravaged and incredibly poor, even though it's on the East Coast. Trump performed very well in those areas and there was some suspicion that what you had to do was change your message on cultural issues. Like maybe don't be so hard on abortion and all the rest of it. Fetterman never backed down on any one of those issues. He just didn't center them. And when he was asked about abortion and when he was asked about trans rights, he was able to communicate in non-academic language that was just very plain, common sense and spoke like Bernie. Now, I know that on the left, often we like to say it's not about style, you know, that's an awful part of politics, the sort of Blair style over substance sort of thing. Like, I get that. That's true. But it does matter. And this guy looked like he comes from a steel town and he's able to talk like that. And I think it represents a different wing or a different overall tactic to the AOC style presentation of left wing politics, which does tend to center cultural war issues. And I think 
this is certainly the sort of argument that's coming out of publications like Jacobin, is the left needs to move into this style of politics. And it's stylistic. But I think that still matters. So it was great to see Fetterman win. It's also worth saying that it was also a tragic campaign because he was doing incredibly well and then had a massive stroke halfway through it and really lost a lot of his communicative functions and then was forced to go into the debate against Oz just after this stroke. Uh, and he was really struggling, you know, because his ability to speak was massively damaged. And in his victory speech, you could see the struggle of just getting up there and delivering the speech. So it was beautiful to see Fetterman win. And maybe it presents a kind of model for the left going forward. Yeah, I, I think that is the approach I would like to see the left have more on, on the so-called, you know, culture war dynamics. It's not about saying, you've got to say, well, a little bit of racism is okay. We can meet them halfway on the racism and so we can get some trade unionism in. I don't think that's uh, what anyone's trying to say. It's the particular way that people like AOC and others tend to frame many of these issues and it is a stylistic thing in many ways but it is an important one because the way it comes across is firstly that you don't like people and secondly that you feel superior to them and it's those two aspects i think of so-called wokeness that we have to deal away with but that doesn't necessarily preclude having the hardest possible line on something like abortion because it's a question of personal freedom so there are ways in which these issues can be presented which just don't come across as contemptuous of people's emotions and which are able to tap into popular themes of freedom in a way that you can relate to the way that people think rather than just coming across like you're better because you did a humanities degree. Absolutely. So yeah, I mean, I, I agree. It is uh, often a matter of presentation with that type of with that type of issue. So that sounds like some positive news amongst the massive civilizational malaise that we are living through. It's pretty bad when the good news is the Democrats did okay in an election. I mean, that really shows you how bad it's got. Yeah, and the bloke wasn't a complete arsehole and didn't go around insulting everyone. Having said that, uh, like, you know what you were saying earlier, like 34% of Americans are angry. Like, looking on from the outside, right, I'm just like, oh my God, these people are armed. What the fuck's going to happen? <laughs> I'm worried about that. Like, genuinely, I think that we're moving towards, in the US, a time in which political violence is going to come back in. I mean, you're seeing this around the world. For ages, there were very few political assassination attempts uh, in the last couple of decades relative to, the, for example, the middle of the 20th century. Now you've got, like, the assassination of Shinzo Abe, the very close-to assassination of Kirchner in Argentina, not to mention Joe Cox in the UK a few years back. You hear lots of stories at the moment of like random right-wing nuts in the US turning up at places with guns. And obviously, usually we hear about that in relation to schools and so on. Now they're turning up at like FBI offices and stuff, going in trying to sort out the deep state. I do think that we're probably going to see a rise in the number of individual right-wing terrorist attacks in the US. Yeah, you're going to see the left having a love-in with the deep state and the right being a bunch of nutters with guns going in and attacking the, the deep state on the basis of sheer vigilantism. Is this the future? This is some sort of mental dystopia. Like, honestly, like, uh, the more I hear about what goes on in the world, the more you just think, what the fuck? This is a massive, a massive decline in civilization. This is like the Mad Max theory of history. 
it's honestly bloody crazy. So on on the other hand, we've got one reasonably nice bloke who did win an election against a complete arsehole. Uh, that is obviously to be celebrated. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contour.substack.com and find great articles and more at contour.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contourscot. So, James, while I was back in Scotland, a certain Glasgow MSP, one Ross Greer, caused a little bit of controversy because apparently the authoritarian Chinese state has come to Scotland. Yes. And he felt it necessary to raise publicly that a Chinese restaurant, what's it called again? Lung Fung. Lung Fung, situated on Socky Hall Street in Glasgow, is in actual fact a secret Chinese military and police headquarters. Would you care to comment on this interesting development? Well, I mean, in all honesty, right, if I was the owners of Lung Fung, I would be absolutely cock-a-hoop at uh, Ross Greer's endorsement because it seems that they're doing a roaring trade subsequent to Ross's intervention. Loads of people are just turning up to see what's going on. Like, uh, maybe they're thinking of joining the Chinese secret police. But, like, you know, when we said that the Greens might be moving a little bit to the right, I didn't think they were going to engage in some of the old-fashioned tactics that even the likes of Nick Griffin are going to talk about and go, oh, I don't know about that. I think we're trying to modernise, like, uh, you know, attacking an Asian business, you know. I think that's the image we want to move away from. Uh, That's a bit old school. No, but seriously, uh, look, maybe Ross has his suspicions, his reasons for suspicion in relation to this restaurant. Let's assume that he does have some basis for what it is he's saying, even though started to hear a lot of rumours that he might have got it wrong. But let's say he does have some basis for it. And he is passing that information on to the relevant authorities and alerting the First Minister also, as he said. What occurs to me is that even if he is entirely well-founded in all of his assumptions here, does one need to take to Twitter to announce this to the world? Surely we can let the authorities, like, you know, it, it seems to me he's like, you should have handed this one on to Hans Blix, right? Rather than just going in and invading Iraq on his own accord, right? Um, let the authorities, much as he might want to abolish the police because he loves being an anarchist or whatever, right? Let the police do their legitimate business if indeed this is a criminal front for uh, the operations of the Chinese secret police. Let Police Scotland handle that particular matter. I hope people aren't going to accuse me of being pro-cop in saying all this, right? But, you know, in some cases, I think you just need to let the professionals be professionals and get on with it, rather than taking to Twitter and condemning people out of court. Because it is, you know, I mean, look, let's say you're 99% certain that this is some sort of front for police activity from the Chinese state which just happens to also serve a range of delicious delicacies. Um, there is a 1% chance that you're wrong. And if you are wrong, like you are essentially, whether you mean to do this or not, 
whipping up hatred against the business of a highly stigmatized group of people, as Chinese people are, right? And I just think you have to be very careful with that type of thing. I don't see why one should be doing that over the medium of Twitter. But on the other hand, I'm thinking about this in retrospect, maybe it wasn't actually Ross Greer. Maybe someone just named themselves Ross Greer and paid $7.99 in order to get accredited. (laughs) That's a lovely little Twitter interjection there. I appreciate that, James. But yeah, seriously, in in an era after COVID in which anti-Asian hate crime has gone through the roof, I would say that going to Twitter to publicly announce this is at best. I don't see why taking to Twitter to announce your virtue and having uncovered this ring or whatever it is adds anything that you couldn't have gained by dealing with this behind the scenes, as you have every right to do as a politician if you have such suspicions. But taking the Twitter just seems to me to be a very risky, dangerous enterprise in the circumstances that you've just mentioned. And it doesn't seem like I can see any potential gain from that, whereas there are a huge amount of risks attached to the fact that you there's always a chance that you're wrong. And also, okay, let's quickly go into where this information comes from, because Ross Greer has made a very serious allegation. So what is the source? Well, the source is a Spanish NGO called Safeguard Defenders, which released a report a couple of weeks ago saying that there was a network of Chinese state police stations dotted throughout Europe and the world, which were designed, apparently, to threaten pro-democracy activists within those countries and to try to get them back to China, effectively. So that was the allegation. Now, I looked on the Safeguard Defenders website, and it's worth saying that they don't announce any of their funders. They have individual funders, but they say that most of their funds come from government and international organisation grants. Now, we don't know what any of those are. They don't release that information. However, the founder of Safeguard Defenders previously had another NGO that he set up in China. And the biggest backer of that NGO was the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm not going to defend the Chinese state on anything. The Chinese state have to be condemned for their actions on a whole range of things. But it's worth saying that the National Endowment for Democracy is not a neutral organisation. The National Endowment for Democracy was, for example, uh, one of the chief backers of the coup attempt in Venezuela against Hugo Chavez and then Nicolas Maduro. They have directly funded violent... Uh, anti-democratic activities in Venezuela and across Latin America, is worth saying. This is effectively a branch of the US State Department. We now don't know where the money for Safeguard Defenders comes from. If it is the case that the founder has ties to the National Endowment for Democracy, I would be very interested to find out more about that. But if that's the case, I think that people should be a little bit more suspicious of where they're getting their information from before they suddenly take to Twitter to make allegations. It seems to me like Ross Greer was probably lobbied in some way and has just got ahead and done what he was asked to do. I think that's... I'm pretty worried about that. Well, look, I'm worried about that as well. And certainly if there is any link to the organisation that you're talking about, 
their commitment to democracy is the standard old-fashioned Cold War one, which is that anything is good for America, that's good for democracy and vice versa. And rather often, of course, that involves supporting people that are anything but democratic in their overall inclinations. Having said all that, just because, let's assume even that, the, that this is linked to that organisation, just because information comes from nefarious sources doesn't mean that the information is in and of itself wrong, right? It seems possible that he's been lobbied and where else is he getting all this information? But my worry is more like, why does he think that it's going to seem particularly virtuous for him to take to this social media platform and announce all of this sort of stuff? I mean, if he seriously believes that there is a threat to pro-democracy activists who are operating inside the UK against the Chinese state or whatever it is, fair enough. Go and deal with that the proper way. But don't risk the fact that you might be whipping up this type of sentiment for the purposes, well, which seem to me to be largely nefarious. Pete, have you been following Just Stop Oil? Just a little bit. These people, like, I mean, we talked about them, I think, the last episode because they've been throwing some soup at a, at a painting. So they've been getting up to all sorts of antics recently. But the main thing that, you know, I mean, lots of people, in fairness to their tactics, lots of people are talking about Just Stop Oil. But the other thing is, I've probably had three dozen conversations about Just Stop Oil. Because I, well, I work in a university and I, you know, I go around talking to people and so on. It's part of my day job, right? Um, so I've had a lot of conversations about it, none of which have ever revolved around oil. So the atomic of oil is not, except for one guy who's like, you do know that the paints that they are using are made of oil, right? That's the only time the topic of oil has come up. And, you know, I, I it's it's highlights one of these things about the contemporary left and its image issues. It's a sad thing to see, of course, that people are doing political acts on an issue of some seriousness, right? But the main issue, as far as most of the public seem to be concerned, is that these people are extraordinarily posh. And every time you think you've seen the poshest of these people, they always ramp it up like with some new level of extraordinary posh that you just have never heard of before. So on this basis, there has been invented a new approach to where you can create your own posh environmentalist name. Have you heard about this at all? No. What is this? Well, you know how you can create your own Tory name? Wait, please do explain for me and right. any so, listeners. Uh, for listeners, for listeners might not have heard of this, right? So your Tory name is the name of your paternal grandfather, their first name, right? The name of the first street that you lived in, or the first part of that name, right? And the second name, the surname, of your first headmaster. So my Tory name is uh-huh. Thomas Crammon Ball. Thomas, wow, that's a great Tory name. Can you work out what yours is? Mine is, um, I think it would be Alan Darcy Burns. Yeah, see, there you go, right? Wow, Alan Dar- yeah, that's... Alan Darcy Burns. Yeah, so this is quite a famous one, Tory name. But to get your posh environmentalist Cambridge-educated name what you need to do, you take the last place you went on holiday and you combine it with your least favourite vegetable, right? So my po- my posh environmentalist name is Menorca Sprout. Oh my God, that's fucking brilliant. Uh, <laughs> Wait, hang on. I'm trying to work out. Does Scotland count? Because obviously I was on holiday in Scotland. 
I think it would need to be Glasgow or Edinburgh or something like that. Hellhead. I think I hate Brussels sprouts as well, um, but I feel like I need to go for for a different vegetable. Yeah. God, wait, hang on, give me a second. I suppose it'd be Glasgow leek. Glasgow leek, yeah, they could definitely be, you know, doing a wee degree down at Cambridge and getting themselves in a gantry, couldn't they, you know? Like, uh, I mean, I feel bad laughing at it, right? Obviously, like, you know, fair play, big issue, right? Um, and actually, I do think the left needs its posh weirdos, right? I mean, I do think you need a share of posh weirdos in the left to give it some of its eccentric elements and, you know, cultural vibes and so on. The problem is when the left is only people who are called Menorca Sprout and Glasgow Leak and so on, right? And that's all the public is seeing. That, to me, does start to become something of a worry. So therefore, yeah, when we've seen Just Stop Oil protests, it tends to be about the clipped vowels of those who are making the protest videos more than the issue of oil, which has only come up in relation to paint and the conversations I've had. Half a century ago, or thereabouts, the posh lefties that people were introduced to were people like Tony Benn. Why can't we get the posh weirdos like Tony Benn back? The thing about Tony Benn is he doesn't come across like that because Tony Benn likes people. And you can tell he respects ordinary people, right? The whole way that this comes across, you know, regardless of saying the oil, crucial issue, whatever, right? The whole way it comes across is that they have contempt for ordinary people. And it's that element of it that's very worrying. And when, of course, that goes with the Menorca Sprout accent, it can, of course, create a particularly jarring impact. I'll be honest, right? It really does come down to, at the end of the day, the same thing uh, that we were talking about with Fetterman. Uh, That is to say that it is partly about the style and presentation and way in which the left makes its arguments and presents itself to the world. To me, it epitomises the problem of the left in another way, which is that if I had to put my finger on what's wrong with the left at the present moment, it's basically that we are not politically radical enough to the circumstances that we're in. But on the other hand, we are far too emotionally extremist. And essentially, I think we need to be precisely the opposite. We need to be emotionally moderate and politically radical, if that makes sense. Like, whereas, you know, really what we're willing to do with all sorts of, you know, compromises, and yet, like, we come across, like, everything is always, you know, a massive cause for alarm. Like, and everything is the end of the world, and etc, etc. It does seem to me that the left thinks that everything is the end of civilization, except for the things that are. 